The Moments That Make Us podcast is produced on Gadigal land, as well as other parts of Australia. In the spirit of reconciliation, Women's Agenda acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and future, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome to The Moments That Make Us, a brand new Women's Agenda podcast that explores those fork-in-the-road moments that change our lives. We'll be delving into the life-altering moments of some of Australia's most prominent women and hearing about the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm Shivani Gopal, the host of Moments That Make Us, a podcast series made possible thanks to the support of Stellar Insurance. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Yumiko Kadota. Yumiko is an emotional female. Yes, she's been called exactly that in her time as a medical doctor. And she's now reclaiming that term to what it should mean, a woman who speaks her truth. You see, Yumiko resigned from public hospital work after experiencing burnout due to a toxic culture of medical hazing. Yumiko has since written a book all about being an emotional female. In this episode, we talk about how she ignored the signs of burnout until her body gave up. We pull back the curtains of the medical industry and learn how Yumiko finally got her sparkle back. Yumiko, hello. It is such a pleasure to have you on this podcast. Hello, Shivani. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. And Yumiko, you have been labeled an emotional female. You've written a book about it. And you know what? I'm so glad that you've done that because we're all emotional females, aren't we? And we're all emotional males. And why in the world should emotions be a bad thing? Can you talk us about how you have decided to reclaim that term emotional and emotional female and, and what it should really mean? I was definitely inspired by Hillary Clinton when she got called a nasty woman and she chose to reclaim that term and seeing it on T-shirts everywhere. I think women are just sick of being called different things that are so gendered. I hardly ever see a man being called emotional. It seems like it's almost always women. Even yesterday, actually, um, when I was giving feedback to a man, he decided to call me intense and aggressive. And I feel like those are tropes that affect women of color more so than any other person. And so that also reminded me of a quote by the great Samantha Jones from Sex and the City, who said, if there is an angry man in a meeting, he's called a pistol, but a woman is called emotional. And so even now, after, you know, it's been four years since I stopped working in the public hospital system, I experience it every day. And I think women can relate to this because somehow these words are used against us. But when I think about the word emotional, it's actually a positive thing. It makes you human. If you didn't have any emotions, you would be a sociopath or a psychopath. So <laughs> having emotion and having empathy is what makes us kind and normal people. Oh, absolutely. And could you imagine how, you know, boring and robotical the world would be if we, if we didn't have emotions that we could share with other people? I am so disappointed um, and sorry, but unfortunately not surprised, Yumiko, that mm. you were called intense and aggressive, not because you are intense or aggressive, but because such feedback is so common to women, right? And as you've rightly noted, mm. women of colour and it's outrageous that that is still occurring. If I were to reframe that, 
you have clearly focused in a lot in giving the message of whatever it was that you were doing, you, you were, you know, delivering to this man. And so, you know, I could reframe intends to be focused. I could reframe intends to be passionate and to be completely emotionally invested for that person's well-being. Aggressive, again, that's passion. That shows a sign of force, um, you know, a force for change, a force for good. And it's so interesting that this person decided to label you as such because those words end up weaponizing you and end up minimizing you so that you start stepping back from yourself, start apologizing for your own power and start as a result playing small. And we don't want that. I know that a woman like yourself would, you know, so aware of that and and would never play small, but these are the impacts that are happening for everyone else. Yumiko, you were actually called an emotional female in your role as a registrar. I'd, I'd love to take our listeners through your backstory, please. For anyone who hasn't read the book, The Emotional Female, you absolutely got to get out there and do that. But just for our listeners now, can you take us through what was happening in your life um, and your work that put you in a position where you were called an emotional female? I was working as a plastic surgery registrar. I was very interested in hand surgery in particular. And so plastic surgery covers hands as well as facial injuries and burns and reconstruction. So it's an amazing specialty. And I still believe that there's amazing things that plastic surgeons do. So I definitely don't want to take away from the specialty itself. And I was working at a hospital where it was severely understaffed. There were only two of us covering a 24-hour roster. And instead of the duties being shared equally, I was doing 10 24-hour shifts a fortnight and my colleague was just doing four. And being on call 24 hours, it doesn't necessarily mean you're awake for that whole time, but you have to be on standby. And so the toll of that really did get to me. And it was difficult being 24 hours on call because it means that anyone at the hospital can call you at any time. And so there is, I guess, a professional courtesy that if you know somebody is on call, that you wouldn't call them in the middle of the night unless it was something really urgent. And and that's what um, on-call rosters are for, just in case you have a really sick patient or someone who's severely injured and you need someone from a surgical team to come in urgently. That's that's what we're there for. We're there just in case you need us. And so I was in a situation where I got rung at three o'clock in the morning and I was already exhausted from being on call for consecutive days. And it was about uh, booking someone an appointment. And so I didn't think it was necessary to ring me at 3 a.m. about an appointment. Um, it was for something that was not urgent. And eventually I found out that it was not even... Um, a referral for my department. It was for uh, somebody else. So I had a firm word with that registrar about professional courtesy. And of course, just like the example I gave just now about my meeting yesterday, men don't like assertive women. They don't like uh, being given feedback like that. And so he decided to call me an emotional female after I politely but assertively told him that it was not appropriate to be ringing on-call registrars about non-urgent things. And I was saying that to advocate not just for myself but others who work 24-7 rosters. And the reason why is because fatigue is such a big issue among surgical registrars. We need to be alert and awake because we're literally cutting people's bodies open and If we make a mistake, it can be potentially life-threatening depending on the part of the body that you're working on. And so being well-rested and alert and at the top of our performance is something that's really important. And so 
being disrupted in the middle of the night does really affect performance the next day. Um, it's since something that I have looked a lot into. I do know that having disrupted sleep is a lot worse than a short duration of sleep. So, for example, if you imagine you're in a nice deep sleep and someone wakes you up in the middle of the night, um, it's really, really hard to get back to sleep, especially if you're in that really, really deep REM sleep. And so there were months and months of that where um, I would be called in the middle of the night. Sometimes it was legitimate. Other times it was something that could have wait, waited till the morning. But regardless, over time during that during that rotation at that hospital, I became more and more mentally and physically unwell. You know, what strikes me is so ironic and, and so ludicrous is that the medical industry, the health industry, who are experts in, you know, what makes us thrive as humans, what makes us heal as humans, what we need as humans to thrive and survive, are ignoring their own research and their own advice, right? You're, you're, you're very right. You need to be rested. You need to have a, a good night's sleep so that you can function, so that you can go and cut other people's hands open, <laughs> and yet you're being interrupted for things that are absolutely ludicrous and then when you complain you're being called an emotional female it's funny Yumiko when you were talking about you know just being interrupted you know in your sleep I'm a mother of a nine-month-old baby I know all about being interrupted in sleep and I think any mums out there are probably sort of nodding along as well you know you you definitely feel like a little bit of a shell of yourself when you're doing that but in your case we're being you know at least in my case I can certainly speak for myself I'm being woken up but there's so much love on the other end right in your case it's you're being woken up and I would imagine just trying to go back to sleep but then being really, really angry and then not being able to go back to sleep because I'm just so annoyed that this person actually <laughs> called them and that annoyance is waking me up even more and then that waking me up even more is making me even more angry. And then there's just this cycle where you're probably just not even getting any rest at all. Um, mm. And then again, to try to minimize you by saying, oh, you know, stop being such an emotional female when again, all you're trying to do is explain your very valid and very justified distress and inappropriateness of what is happening to you. And speaking of what is happening to you, you were placed in a very unfair and by the sound of things, very unprotected situation in your medical career as a surgical registrar. You know, in preparing for our conversation, I was doing a, a lot of reading and, and I've got a lot of friends in the medical industry. And it seems to me that you were in this almost this no man's land in your career in terms of protection, right? People who were new to being doctors and, you know, um, surgeons, you know, people who were interns, there's lots of protections and program reviews and things like that. But when you are an unaccredited registrar and you're trying so hard to move into this program, you're, you're in this, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't sort of situation where if you're not getting good working practices, you know, who do you complain to? You don't have, you know, a college of surgeons who are really protecting you around this. And if you do complain, it's, it's on written record and you're trying to impress other people so that you can get supported into a program. You're exactly right. It's a very vulnerable group of doctors and one that is very, very easy to exploit. When you first start as a doctor, you're, you are an intern or a resident and the hospital looks after you. And there's also a postgraduate medical council that looks after the needs of the first two years. But then you have to try and get onto these very competitive advanced training programs. And until you are on one of those programs, until you're an accredited registrar on those official programs, there's no one looking after you. It's a lot of pressure and, and you're very right. It's ripe for exploitation. You've worked years and years and years. And as you've said, you've sacrificed a hell of a lot of sleep in order to get to where you are. And 
um, it almost creates this environment, I imagine, well, I'll just sacrifice a little bit more. And it's rewarding people who stay quiet and therefore, you know, creating this environment of, of leaders saying, well, if I went through all that crap, I'm going to make sure that you go through it too. When I was reading about this, Yumiko, it felt to me like medical hazing, right? I had to go through these outrageous rosters. I had to be on call all the time. So now I'm going to make sure that I reap the benefits of being the really senior person where I can call the shots and you now need to go through this. After your book, there was a, a you know great level of, um, of outcry, as there should be, and, and a huge amount of attention. I know that, you know, um, Brad Hazard came out and, um, and talked about, you know, a review that needs to be done. How's anything been done? Has there been any change? And, and where do we need to go from here? I don't think anything's changed, unfortunately. And when I first wrote about my experience, it was in a blog post about three years ago now. And I still have friends in the public hospital system. Not much has changed. And I've also recently had to deal with a troll from a public hospital in New South Wales. He was writing one-star reviews about my book on Goodreads. And then just over the weekend, he wrote some really nasty comments on my Facebook page. And luckily enough, there were a few people who knew who this person was. And he was silly enough to put his own photos on this troll account where he had an anonymous um account a pseudonym and a cartoon as a profile picture but even with all of that proof of his identity I'm really struggling right now to get the hospitals to care the hospitals do have these policies in place but I always say there's no point in having policies or guidelines if no one follows them and so based on the New South Wales health social media policy I contacted his head of department and explained to him what had happened. I had screenshots of all these nasty messages that he was saying about me. And he simply said, well, you can't see his name or his employment. So it sounds like something you need to take up with the individual. And so this is what happens when you try to go down the right path to resolve something if you're being bullied and no one does anything about it. And so that's why bullying in medicine is such a huge problem even now. And even though I'm out of it now and I feel so empowered to speak up for myself, I'm still finding trouble finding anyone to care about the fact that I'm being cyberbullied by this anesthetist. And it just demonstrated to me exactly why people don't report in the first place because they know that no one will do anything about it. Mm. It's rewarding bad behavior as a result. And I think the world has already shifted to, you know, you can't just live in your silo and be good at your job. You need to be a good global citizen wherever you turn up. And that includes your social media behavior. And that has spilled over to so many industries, but it seems it's yet to spill over to the medical industry. And I feel like, Yumiko, you have opened up Pandora's box in terms of, you know, there are these great hands that care for us, but who cares for you? And it sounds like there isn't enough care for you. And that is the big shift and the big change that needs to happen. And accountability around that certainly needs to be there. If you were to look at, you know, the kind of protections that would need to be in place for doctors, what might that look like? I have to say that we do need a huge cultural shift, but culture is something that's very hard to change and also very hard to quantify. So in terms of things that can be implemented straight away, simple things like adequate staffing is a simple solution. If you have enough people sharing the work, then you have less burnt out doctors. It's so simple, but we still have all of these understaffed departments 
And especially now during the pandemic, there were people off sick because they had to isolate or contracted、um, the virus at work. And so healthcare workers have been under a lot of strain over the last couple of years. And that's possibly why we still haven't really. Gotten anywhere? I guess the focus has been more on handling this pandemic that no one has really cared about the people looking after all the patients with COVID. So I think partly that's why there's been a delay in in us trying to address some of these cultural issues in the hospital. But I do think that making sure that there is enough staff and that each staff member is working safe working hours is something that is so easily implemented. I do know that there was one college,、um, one, one surgical specialty that limited the amount of on call for the registrars because there was a registrar who died by suicide from overworking, and so now that specialty requires at least three registrars to cover the on call roster because I think. We've all seen, and some of us have experienced, how much of a strain doing one and two on call has on the body and also on our mental function. So, I do think that some surgical specialties are taking it more seriously than others, but there needs to be more of a consistent commitment to making sure that we're all working safe hours and also to not glamorize overworking. Like I, I love. The phrase you used before about medical hazing, it perfectly describes what it's like because it's almost rewarded if you work too much. <laughs> it's like you get a medal for working the most number of hours, but it shouldn't be like that. It's not really a competition, and I don't think we should be rewarding completely working down to the bone. It's just ridiculous. I think it's partly the toxic masculinity in surgery. And、um, those sorts of things need to stop, and we need to encourage people to actually rest, and that it's not a shameful thing to need rest. It's normal human physiology to require rest. And as you said before, it's ironic because we're meant to be health professionals advising people on how to live healthy lives, and yet we're punishing our bodies, and it doesn't really make sense. It doesn't make any sense at all, and. Yumiko, when I was doing the readings to prepare myself for a wonderful chat that we're having right now, I was quite rightly absolutely outraged in terms of what it is that you had to go through. And how many days did you work nonstop, Yumiko? It was twenty-eight days nonstop. Yeah, towards the end, I think when I resigned, it was my twenty-fourth day in a row of working, and most of those days were twenty-four hour shifts. So even though I did get to go home during those shifts. I never really got to switch off, and I do believe that that is one of the major reasons why I got so mentally unwell because my brain just never switched off during that twenty-four day period. And I have to say, it took me eighteen months to sleep again. I got diagnosed with major depression, and my main symptom was insomnia, which is probably unsurprising given how little sleep I got. <laughs> my body just didn't know how to sleep, and it took. A lot of different medications, not just antidepressants, but lots of different medications to try and make me sleep, and nothing really worked. But 18 months later, we finally found a medication that worked for my particular, I guess, brain chemical imbalance, and I started to sleep again. But it was 18 months of hell, not still not being able to sleep, even though I'd resigned and I was no longer in this horrible situation. The effects of 
burning out severely and becoming so mentally unwell really stayed with me for a long time. And I only recently just got got off antidepressants. I finally weaned off um, just a few weeks ago, actually. So this is all very new, but it's been nearly four years of being medicated. And so I do really want to emphasize that because I think sometimes we use the word burnout a lot and we use it casually, like it's not a big deal. Oh, I'm a bit tired, I'm burnt out. Um, But burnout is so much more than just feeling a little bit tired. It's something that's very pervasive and can make, make people very unwell and it takes a long time to recover. So it's something that I do think hospitals do need to care about because when you have burnt out workers, it can take a lot of time to rehabilitate all of these healthcare workers that have burnt out on the job. And in my situation, it was four years, but I do know of others who have taken longer to recover. And so that's really a huge impact on any individual to be out of action for that long and not being your full functional happy self. Absolutely. And let's talk about that burnout, right? Because I've read about this, that, you know, if something isn't right for you, um, if something's not working for you, your body gives you signals, it tells you to stop, to slow down, to take a minute. For me, you know, often I I will very much ignore those signals and eventually, boom, I'm unwell. And it's like, (laughs) oh, right, well, I've got to take a couple of days off now. And it's just my body's given me no choice. In your case, you had a pretty alarming sense of um of your body just saying nope Yumiko something's not right because you were driving to work and you quite literally shat your pants on the way I did (laughs) it was awful I can laugh about it now but I was horrified at the time I didn't realize how sick I was I, I I mean I do remember having a few stomach aches here and there um but when it happened it just it was there was no warning I was literally just driving to work And then I felt something warm and moist in my skirt and I pulled over, I had a look and sure enough, there was poo everywhere. And I just thought, wow, I think I was about 30 or 29 at the time. I thought I'm a healthy person. This shouldn't be happening. I should have full control of my bowels. So that was really a huge red flag. I knew that something was seriously wrong with my body when that happened Um, because it's not normal for young, healthy people to lose continence. And it's interesting because since coming up with my story and writing about all of this, a few other people have talked to me about losing their bowel function. And they're all young people too who were working extremely hard and feeling so burnt out. Um, But, yeah, it it manifests in different ways. Um, I've had other people say they lost urinary incontinence or they peed themselves. Other people had autoimmune issues or skin things. Regardless of how it physically manifests, I think if you get a physical symptom of your burnout, that's when you know there's something seriously wrong. It's gone beyond feeling mentally tired. Your, Your body is breaking down and that's... A serious thing. It very much is a, a, a serious thing, and and there there were some other signs as well on the way to burnout, wasn't there, Yumiko? I mean, uh, you were you were speaking to a, a friend who mentioned to you, "Hey, Yumiko, you've you've lost your sparkle." And when I read that, it resonated with me so deeply because I think we as humans we are sparkly, right? There's there is stuff that just lights up our soul. We get excited about, we smile about, you know, there's there's stuff that is hopeful that gets us, you know, keen to look forward to the next day. And when you lose your sparkle, to me it's, you know, you've been crushed by the system, by the hierarchy, by feeling unsupported. It it made me so sad when when I read that you've lost 
your sparkle. Tell us where you're at now. Have you got your sparkle back, Yumiko? Um, I'm overall I'm loving life now. Life is never perfect. There's always going to be challenges, but I feel I feel great. I'm finally off medications, which is a huge milestone for me. I didn't know whether I would ever be able to wean off them. But I do have to say that if anyone out there requires medications, there is no shame in that. If I ever relapse or need them again, I will happily take medication again. Whatever you need to function and live a happy, fulfilling life is good. But I am able now to have lots of different interests. And I think that's something that I have always valued since childhood. And I think my parents really encouraged me to be interested, to be curious. And when I was studying medicine, of course, I was very passionate about studying. But there was probably a length of time where work got too much that I didn't have time to really enjoy anything outside of work. I don't think I even had time to watch the news. I probably at some point didn't even know who the prime minister was because <laughs> I was just so slammed at work. Yeah, but nowadays, I'm not sure if you've heard of this um, phrase called portfolio career before, but it's something that is popular among young people. Um, yeah, portfolio careers, I feel, allow you to have flexibility in your life, especially if you're someone who is passionate about lots of different things. And for me, um, I'm able to teach body pump a couple of days a week. And that's something that I chose to do for my own mental health. I love it because it's high energy, great music, and it helps me to bond with the local community. A lot of people who live in the area come to my classes and they're, they've all actually helped me, I feel, in my recovery in an indirect way. Because when I see their happy faces every single week come along to my class and they tell me that they enjoy my class, I feel good that I'm doing something that makes a difference to their lives, um, but also is helping me with my mental and physical health as well. So I, I love that I can prioritize doing something like exercise that is good for me. And I have to say that during my recovery from depression, seeing an exercise physiologist helped me a lot managing my fatigue and my sleep. So I'm a huge advocate for doing a little bit of exercise every week in whatever form that suits you. So I'm, I'm so happy that I'm able to find time for that. I am back to clinical work. I still assist um, a plastic surgeon now and then in the operating theatre, so I don't feel like I've wasted my skills in any way. And I've also recently started my own new business with a skin clinic, so I feel grateful. And obviously I was in a privileged position to be able to find this path and it made sense to me because I was working plastic surgery where we do study a lot about the skin. We perform skin grafts and, and look after people with various skin conditions. So it made sense to me to, to walk down this alternative but related path. So I feel like everything I've done, I've still been able to utilize some of the skills and knowledge that I gained in the eight years, I guess, that I was in the public hospital system. Um, I studied for six years, worked for eight at the time I resigned. Um, so that's a very long time to commit to something. And I do remember a lot of people saying, oh, what a waste to throw all of that away. But I do feel like what I'm doing now is, is not exactly the plan A that I had for myself, but it's still something that I feel good about and that I haven't wasted any of my, my time. So I'm happy that I can do that. And of course, I'm happy that I can have conversations like this. I'm such a 
I guess, I don't know, social justice warrior, like a bad thing? <laughs> I know sometimes people um, say it like it's a bad thing. I, I do know I've had people say to me, oh, so Yumiko, what social issue are you fighting about today? Um, in a sarcastic kind of way, but I see it as a good thing. I love talking about social issues and I love sharing my social commentary on various issues that affect women, especially women of colour. So the fact that I'm able to do that now in an open way is something I'm also grateful for because for the longest time, especially while I was an unaccredited registrar, I felt like I was silenced or discouraged to, to talk about my real feelings. And now that I'm my own boss, I there's nothing holding me back. And I feel like in the last few years while I've been recovering, I've been able to find my own voice. And that's probably the biggest thing for me that I can talk openly and authentically to people about what I'm passionate about without worrying about whether I'm going to be selected for something. <laughs> Goodness, absolutely. Yumika, there's so much I, I want to comment on from, from what you said, and I'll keep it concise because you've described it so well. I'm just going to echo Adam Grant and the great Cheryl Sandberg. Um, sure, it wasn't plan A, but you are kicking the shit out of plan B. Um, and if you <laughs> ask me, you are doing a very good job of plan B. And for those of you, you know, for those people who say, oh, you know, what a waste. I would challenge them to think about how normative they're thinking about careers and futures. If you have a look at, you know, the way that careers have changed, technology has changed from 10, 20, 50 years ago to now, we never would have gotten here if we thought about things in a normative way. And you are really challenging those norms, especially, you know, women of colour as well. We're, we're very much trained to, you know, study really hard, go to high school, study really hard, go to university, then get yourself in this career and work, 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 look up and, and the world has passed you by, but at least you worked really hard, right? Um, <laughs> and and you're, you're challenging all of that and good on you for doing exactly that. You talked about finding your voice and this podcast um, is called, you know, Moments That Make Us. I would love to hear about the moments that have made you, you know, transform into the woman you are today and, and find your voice, please. I think that it was my unexpected response to my blog post initially. I wrote that mainly for myself as a way of debriefing about what had happened to me without any expectation that anyone would read it or even respond to it. So I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with social media, but I do know that social media is what helped me get my voice out there because if it weren't for people sharing my blog post on Twitter, for example, I don't think it would have reached the mainstream media. And without that, I never would have been given a book deal. And so the platform I have been given is purely from people reading my story, relating to it enough that they wanted to share it. And I didn't even know this was all happening because I didn't even have a Twitter account at the time. Um, so for people to have discovered it and to share it really validated my experience. And I think that was the moment that made me realize that what I had to say is important and relatable because when you burn out and leave the hospital system, you're made to feel like a failure. And that's what people think about people who have left. They think, oh, they didn't cut it. You know, they, they didn't make the cut. They couldn't survive because they're weak. There's a lot of victim blaming and gaslighting when you leave because if you leave, it must be because you couldn't cope. And one of the things that I really wanted to emphasize in my book was that we need to change that. It's really institutions that need to take responsibility for working conditions that allow burnout to even happen because all of those systemic factors are what 
yeah, what, what are making people unwell. And so I reject anyone who tries to blame someone who has burnt out on the job because we need to stop doing that to people and really take responsibility to the environmental factors. And in fact, you know, since I burnt out, um, the definition of burnout has changed and is now even included in the international classification of diseases, which is a manual that doctors use to diagnose people. And even though it's not strictly a medical condition, it is included in the in the ICD, the International Classification of Diseases, as an occupational phenomenon. And I think that that's really a great, um, it's a great move. It, it shows progression in our way of thinking. It shows, I love that it says occupational because it shows that there are other factors. It's not the individual's fault. Uh, it's a multifactorial thing when people burn out and it's almost always things in the environment that can be changed to prevent people from getting unwell from work. And so... My experience when I first left was I was made to feel like a failure and I felt like I had done something wrong. But when I wrote my blog post and all of these people who I never met reached out to me and shared their stories and made me feel like I wasn't alone and other people who had experienced similar things like sexism or racism in the workplace I realized that it's not me. And, and, you know, we started this conversation talking about various tropes of women, particularly women of color. I think it affects a lot of black women. Um, I know that it affects them more than it affects women like me who are Asian. But whenever you see an assertive black woman, there's always this angry black woman trope. And so we are stuck with all of these stereotypes and sexist tropes. And so... Now that I have been talking so much in this space, I realized that there are all these invisible things that are pulling down women. Part of my finding my voice has been a social education for myself, learning about all of these issues like sexism and racism through interacting with people online and doing my own reading. And so I feel like now that I have all of this extra knowledge, I'm able to advocate so much better and I definitely didn't think that I would ever be an advocate in any way, um, but I'm really happy that I'm able to do that now, um, especially reading about people who felt empowered by my story to leave their toxic workplaces and do something better for the for themselves and, and stick up for themselves. And so I'm really happy that I'm able to do that. Mm. Let's go through that path of, you know, how to spot these things so that you can better stick up for yourself because because you should. And some of your very real experiences, that path to burnout I want to talk about was littered with microaggressions. Uh, you know, when you did speak up about things, people said, oh, Yumiko, you should go home now. Wouldn't want you to get too tired now, would we? How have you learned from that in terms of being able to spot different things that happen on, on the realm to burnout that people accidentally buy into? And how can you educate our audiences on what they should be doing as a result when they see some of these things come their way you know obviously again I want to emphasize that a lot of these things are environmental issues so it's not your fault but one way that you can protect yourself is making sure you set boundaries and that's something that I still struggle with sometimes Um, but learning to say no is so important because you do need to protect your peace and your mental health And so if you're in a situation where you're overwhelmed and have too much to do, it's okay to say no to things. It's okay to prioritize your 
mental health. And I've recently also come across this phrase called scope creep. I'm not sure if it happens to you at all, Shivani, when people give you something to do and, you know, they'll pay you for something, but then they'll come back and make you do more than the original discussion, the original scope that you'd established. And it's a way that people can exploit others um, by not paying you properly for your work and getting you to do more. And it's so easy to do to women because we're expected to be obliging and to do all of these extra things. So when you notice someone trying to make you do more than what was originally discussed, or if they're making you you do their job, that's a red flag. And once you realize that, you need to be able to say no. And so I've had to learn to be firm about my boundaries. And this is why it's so important that women aren't the minority, right, in in these industries representing, because when you are a minority, you feel like you suddenly represent your whole gender or your whole race. And so you can't possibly fail because as a result, you're making women look bad or making, you know, Japanese women look bad or Indian women look bad. And so you do feel like you've got to go above and beyond, whereas you don't. You should just be able to do the job that you're hired for and then go back home and and be paid for that. Great insights, Yumiko. This podcast, of course, is called Moments That Make Us. And I like to do a little wrap up by saying moments that made me go, hmm. And there were a lot of moments that gave me insights that made me go, hmm. And I, I have to, you know, summarize that by, you know, talking about, you know, your advice, your mother's advice on being curious and being interested in life. And as a result, you never know what could happen. You could end up following plan A, but you could also end up having a portfolio career. For you, Yumiko, it's about having the courage to call it out, even the the sticky, ugly stuff, right, about quite possibly shitting your pants and as a result, you know, creating change across industries, embracing your true self and winning your sparkle back. And also there is no shame in having boundaries, having a strong sense of mental health. What I also loved about what you said in your in, in your introduction, you know, you must embrace your emotion. If you don't want to be a narcissist, be an emotional female. I absolutely love that. And finally, you know, having an alternative path because you may not follow plan A, but plan B can be better. Dr. Yumiko Kadota, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Shivani.